Now then, let's um, turn again to Genesis 11, and we'll pick up essentially where we left off this morning. And turning to the same text in verse 4, Genesis 11 and verse 4. And they said, that is the builders of the city of Babel and the tower of Babel, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. This morning, I suppose you could say we focused particularly on the last part of that verse, the disobedience involved in it, not wanting to scatter, but wanting to centralize. Uh, Tonight, let's focus more on the first part of it. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, our purpose uh, in looking at this passage is really to prepare the way to study the book of Daniel properly. Because central to understanding that book is to understand the city in which Daniel was called to live and to work and to witness, to witness for God. He was called to do all that in Babylon. Babylon is one of many ancient cities in the world, but it's not an ordinary city. In fact, it is an extraordinary city, And it is quite unique in the Bible. All the other cities have died, essentially. But this is a city that still lives on. It's the first recorded city. It's the first city built after the flood. It's a city that still lives. I know its ruins are there, but according to the Bible, it still lives on. Its spirit lives on in the world of politics, in the world of religion, and in the world of philosophy. And the city will actually last, in some way, until the end of the world. We have its destruction brought before us in Revelation 17 and 18. So it's vital, really, that we understand what Babylon is, that we learn to recognize it, and that we flee from it. In Revelation 17, we are told to flee from Babylon in case we become partaker of her sins. Now, we saw the building of the city in the morning. It's significant that it's recorded in the opening chapters of Genesis. And we saw how the building of the city itself, and especially the tower, was actually an act of defiance under the leadership of this powerful man called Nimrod. The building of the city and the tower was actually a rejection of God's authority. We saw how that was in the morning. But I concluded in the morning by by saying that it wasn't just a rejection of God. It was even more profound than that. It was actually a replacement of God with something else. Now, there are many ways, of course, in which we can replace God with something else. I hinted in the morning that we have to do that, really. If we're going to reject God, we must put something else there. It's a pretty well-known phenomenon that there is a religious inclination within us. 
Evolutionists admit that, although they try to come up with their own explanations for it. We have a sense of awe, a sense of creaturehood. We have a sense of divinity. So when we reject God, we always replace him with something or somebody else. And there are many ways, of course, of replacing God. Some of them we're very familiar with. We use a term like polytheism to speak of people who have many gods. Sometimes these are the forces of nature, personified, but still many gods. We speak, too, of something like pantheism. Pantheism means that everything is God, really. Not so much that God is in everything, but that everything is a manifestation of God somehow. In other words, a manifestation of the divine, that we are a manifestation of the divine, so are the sun and the moon and the stars and so on. And to be honest, I sometimes think that materialism is not a million miles away from that. Materialism is the, is the belief that many people adhere to, which is that everything consists of matter, and matter is all there is. Now, that's fine, and it seems very distinct from pantheism. But you'll notice that people who, who believe that very often tend to elevate this matter uh, onto a higher level. And they start to speak of it as though it's divine. I'm sure I've mentioned to you before that when um, David Attenborough does his nature programs, uh, he's very often almost reminiscent of a priest in the way in which he speaks. These quiet, reverential, hushed tones as he brings before us the wonderful world of nature. I remember a couple of years back stumbling on a website that was encouraging us to worship this world simply because of how fantastic it was in the grand scheme of things. How amazing to be silent before it, to be reverent, to be in awe. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but the more I think about that, um, the more conceptually difficult I find it to be at, in awe at chance. Because it doesn't really matter how complex chance is, it's just chance. And at the end of the day, it's hard to be in awe at chance. Awe is an emotion that is only consistent with God, with purpose and design. Uh, but still it's interesting that people who believe fiercely that everything can be reduced to matter suddenly exalt the world of matter to have divine qualities. Bow before the universe and stand in awe. Now that's a danger, of course. Polytheism is a danger. Having a false god is a danger. All these things are dangerous. <clears throat> but in some ways, they're almost kid stuff in comparison with the real enemy and the real danger. What is the real enemy and the real danger? If you're going to think about the world of idolatry or worshipping somebody or something that is not God, what is, the, what is the real danger? What is the oldest danger and the greatest danger? Well, it's the God of Babylon that's the greatest danger. And whenever we come across the God of Babylon, that's when we need to flee. What is it? Well, I'm sure you've probably guessed by now what it is. The God of Babylon is mankind itself. Mankind itself, male and female, 
These builders of Babylon don't just say, let's stay together in defiance of God's word. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make ourselves a reputation. Let us make ourselves something so that people will adhere to us, remain under our rule, our sway, and our authority. Let us make a name for ourselves. And there you have the essence of what is called humanism. Humanism can be thought of and spoken of in different ways, but at the heart of it, I mean, if you'd ask what the real definition of humanism is, is that it's just putting the human in the place of God. Instead of theism, or the worship of God, humanism is making man the measure and the heart of all things. It's all about us. And the outworking of that is rationalism. It's by our human understanding that we evaluate everything. Humanism, man taking the place of God. Now, what I want to emphasize from your, for you, or the first thing I want to stress, is that this is the oldest human idolatry. It's the original human idolatry, the worship of self. Uh, if you even go back from Genesis 11, right back to Genesis 3, and you don't need to turn it up, but go back to it in your minds, in your memories, you'll remember that this was the temptation that Satan used with Eve and through her, Adam. You shall be as gods. If you reach to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you take of that fruit, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, I think that word gods would be better there translated God. Again, the singular and plural form is identical in the Hebrew. Um, if you're to take it in the Hebrew, I think Satan simply means that you, Eve, and you, Adam, will both be gods. But I think it's best kept singular because the word Elohim is singular in the rest of that narrative. Don't see why it should be plural there. Let's keep it singular. In other words, you shall be as God. What is God? Well, he's free. He's not bound to anybody. He is the ruler. He is the legislator. He is the one who says what is right and what is wrong. And the devil says that, well, you're in bondage to that, he says to Adam and Eve. You think you're free. You're foolish. You're in cords like we thought in the morning. You're religiously bound. But you can reach out and become what I am, the devil says. I'm free. I know things you don't know. Assert yourself. Assert your rights. Assert your independence. Assert your power to say what's right and what's wrong. To live as you please. Does God not do what he pleases? Well, you do as you please as well. Take charge of your morality. Let it be what you want it to be. Take charge of your own life. There's no need to be dependent on this ridiculous tree of life. You can still live forever with a knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the choice the devil 
essentially presents to mankind is autonomy instead of theonomy. Instead of God's law, theonomy, you can be a law to yourself, autonomy. That, of course, is what they chose. That's what you choose. That's what I choose. I've probably said this to you many, many times, but I can't emphasize it enough. That's at the heart of your problem. This is our disease. We are autonomous, and we want to be autonomous. We don't want God. We don't want his lordship. No, we don't want him at all. Only on our terms. You'll notice the same spirit outside the garden. You remember when we looked at Cain, who was banished from the presence of God, he went eastward into the land of Nod, which means wandering in Hebrew. How revealing that is. When we leave God, we start to wander. If you've left God, if you've left everything that was signified in your baptism, if you've turned your back on your upbringing, now you may be thinking you're choosing your own destiny, you're autonomous, making your own life, you're your own woman, you're your own man. Well, fair enough, but as far as God's word is concerned, is you're wandering. No real destination, no sense of where you're going at all, actually. You really don't. Cain, you'll remember, built a city and he called it after the name of his son, Enoch. Dedicated. That's what the word Enoch means, dedicated. Uh, We came later to another Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, who was dedicated to God. But this Enoch had a city dedicated to him. Man-centeredness, you see. That means that the fruit of sin... You could say that almost literally. But the fruit of sin was working itself out in the human life. Dedicating projects to ourselves. Making things and putting our name on them. Building cities and saying this city was built by such and such in honor of such and such. People do that with churches. They call them saint this and saint that or uh, somebody's memorial church. I mean, who on earth wants a church named after them? Do you? Just put Christ's name on a church or just an address, not my name or yours. But this is the spirit of Babylon, you see. It's the spirit of Babylon. You shall be as gods. Um, But this time, uh, the city of Enoch was destroyed, Cain's city, and all the other cities that were built antediluvian or pre-flood. This first post-flood city of Babylon is going to stay around. The important thing is that we know it and that we're not contaminated by it. But I, I just want to emphasize this to you, that what defines Babylon is that man is at its heart. I mentioned to you in the morning just how Daniel, um, many years later, when he would have come into Babylon... He would have been struck first by the tower in the middle of the city. Uh, You'll remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which, of course, we'll look at when we come to the book. He saw a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, successive world empires in the form of a man, you see, humanistic world empires. This is the heart of Babylon. Come and let us make a name for ourselves, us Jerusalem, on the other hand, is an opposing city. Jerusalem has God at the center of it. 
Jerusalem is the place of which God says again and again in the Old Testament that he will place his name there. I will record my name there. God's name was recorded there. And at the heart of Jerusalem, you won't find a tower, you'll find a temple. Not a tower to promote man's achievements, but a temple in which God will dwell. And of the temple, too, in the city of Jerusalem, we're told that God placed his name there. So you'll recognize Jerusalem by the name of God being at its heart, central to everything. You'll recognize Babylon by man being at the center of everything. Do we see that? Here's your touchstone. Is it God that's being honored in this place, or is it man? Sometimes, unless you're discerning, it's not easy to tell. And that's part of the problem today, you see, because the church, and I have to say it, because I believe it's the truth, I think the church is full of undiscerning people who can't recognize Babylon, even when they're in the middle of it. They can't. I think it's worth looking at our own society, looking at our own nation, perhaps the West generally, but let's confine it to where we live, and ask, who is it that we exalt? Who do we exalt as a nation? Who do we exalt in the church? And who do we exalt in our own individual hearts? Is God's name in your heart? Has God placed his name there? Or are you saying in your heart, let me make a name for myself, please? Take the nation... Well, I don't think our nation is interested in God's name being established. I think it is interested in making a name for ourselves. If you take the world of politics, I don't need to elaborate. I really don't. It's enough to say it. You know immediately how man-centered it is. You know how man-centered the parties are. You know how man-centered that politics are. It's all about man. It's not about God at all. Take our cultural icons. They're interesting things. It's interesting what people in America want rid of and what they want to build. There are statues statues they want to take down, other statues that they want to build. Statues aren't everything. Sometimes you can tell in the films people produce and watch. That's more relevant in our society. You'll see what really matters to us. There was a film released there in July called Dunkirk, which was, of course, about Dunkirk. But it was very much about people and was not at all about God. And that's interesting because there was a time not that long ago when that event was actually viewed as a miracle, really. It was viewed as a miracle. Even Churchill himself, who who certainly in some way believed in God, but in other ways he really wasn't very religious, but he recorded that he was conscious that there were interventions, that there was an interference at certain points in the conduct of the war. By that he meant divine. A few days before Dunkirk, I'm sure you'll be, some of you anyway, most of you will be familiar with the fact that the king of this nation called for a national day of prayer. Uh, There were many occasions on which our queen could and should have done that since she came to the throne, but her father certainly did it. And the situation when he called for the day of prayer looked really, really bleak. When that day came on the 26th of May on the Sabbath day, 
Churches were full to capacity all over the UK, queues inside, outside, not able to get in. And then it's a well-known fact that three mysterious things happened. On the following day, the German army suddenly, mysteriously stopped advancing, and nobody, literally nobody, knows why. They stopped for three days, and it was fatal for them. Had they continued, they would have destroyed the remnants of the Allied forces that were left. Nobody knows why. On the following day, the Luftwaffe was grounded by freak bad weather. On the following night, a flat calm which lasted into the day, which enabled the channel to be crossed by, was it around 800 ships? The significant thing is that on the 9th of June, the same king who had called for a national day of prayer called for a national day of thanksgiving. Sometimes, you know, that shows the reality of whether a person really prayed or not. I think that tells us whether he prayed himself. It's when you bother to return and to give thanks. That's what really tells the reality of the prayer in the first place. Again, the churches were filled, and they were filled to overflowing. My point is that none of that appears in the film. It's all about people's courage. It's all about heroism. It's all about what people did, what people said. Our heroes, with the heroic actors playing the part, who are more known and revered than anybody who took part in the actual event itself. But that's the point. You see, there's nothing about God in it. We memorialize great events in which God clearly had an overruling hand, and there's no mention. Some of you are actually too young to remember the Millennium Dome of 2000. Most of you will remember it, celebrating the turn of the millennium. And we celebrated it with a giant dome which was a project of farce from beginning to end and certainly had nothing of God in it. And every single event that took place nationally in connection with the millennium proceeded to ignore the very man around whom the date had any significance at all. 2000 what? A.D. Anno Domini. Hmm? But he's missing. He's missing from the dome. He's missing from everywhere else. He's missing from our nation. Rather, it's a case of let us make a name for ourselves. Are politicians here to serve God? No. But let us make a name for ourselves. Let's make a war so that we'll be remembered. What about the church? Is the church interested in God's name being established in her midst? Or does the church herself come to say, let us make a name for ourselves? Well, I'm sure you know that most of the churches in our land are dominated by what's often called a seeker-sensitive kind of culture. That's a fancy way of saying man-centeredness. You find churches going out to ask the world, saying, what would you like us to be and what would you like us to do? What would make you feel more comfortable in church? What kind of things could we do? It reminds me, in my previous church, sad to say, that all the ministers 
were called together to be addressed by somebody who wasn't a minister at all, a woman who was telling us how we should be leading our churches. I thought, what on earth is this all about? If we have need of such a thing, we should resign immediately. Of course, we're used to thinking of churches that have man at their head or man at the center in certain ways. For example, we could think of the Roman Catholic Church. We're familiar with that one because it is ruled by a single individual who is officially the vicar or the representative of Christ on earth with full powers of infallibility when he speaks ex cathedra. And we're astonished that such a church is ruled by a man. But our Protestant church is not full of this kind of thing, too. What's happened to worship? Well, it's become a performance, has it not? I mean, normally the idea of worship is that God is absolutely central to it. That the word of God dominates it. That we even use the word of God in it. But worship has become what people do and is observed by others. You come to see worship. You come to listen to worship rather than to participate in. It's a performance. But what about ourselves, actually? I mean, as individuals. Can you honestly say that your reason for living yourself is to exalt the name of God? Is the name of God planted in the temple of your own heart? Is it where God dwells? Or are you concerned with making a name for yourself. It's astonishing in our sinful beings, this lust that suddenly pervades to have fame. I was reading recently about a young person who wanted to die because he was sure by doing so that he would gain some kind of fame. Life wasn't really worth living, obviously because he hadn't acquired fame, and he thought that by dying he might become famous. What's going on there, really? I mean, what's going on? In our own generation, there is an obsession with celebrity, yeah? There's an obsession, too, with body image. People taking photos of themselves, of their own bodies, putting them up on Facebook and Instagram. The worship of self, that's what it is, narcissism. Plain and simple, it's the worship of self. It's the worship of our own name. Endless selfies. (laughs) The clue's in the name, folks. Selfies. Dressing up, pouting, sticking them on for everybody to look at. What for? See, it's worse than you think it is, more serious than you think it is. We think this kind of thing is just a cultural phenomenon. Oh, it is a cultural phenomenon, all right. But don't think there's nothing spiritual behind it. Of course there is. The sad truth is, and I often feel like just simply saying it, I wish I could say it to people that I see performing and so on. You love yourself. You love yourself. And paradoxically, at the same time, you hate yourself because you're not as good as you want to be. You wish you could project yourself even better, even better looking, even more muscular and even more powerful. So you love yourself and you hate yourself at the same time. 
Has that got anything to do with Jerusalem? Nothing. But it's got everything to do with Babylon. It's got everything to do with making a name for yourself so that people will gather and stay around you. The spirit of Babylon will go to any length to be free of the shackles of God and free of the restraints of Jerusalem, free of what we saw in the morning, rebelling against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us cast their cords from us, their binds, let us cast away their binds. We'll do anything, including androgyny. Androgyny is the merging of the sexes into one. You think it's new. It's not new at all. In fact, uh, um, a writer who is not Christian uh, brought out a book a few years ago to show that androgyny was right at the heart of the decline of both the Greek and the Roman empires, this merging of distinctions between sexes. It's probably going to lead to a collapse of our culture too, unless it changes. But this is the form of idolatry that you're most likely to meet, to be guilty of, worshipping yourself. Worshipping yourself. I doubt if you're going to be a polytheist. I doubt if you're going to be a pantheist. You may be a materialist. I don't know. But one thing sure, if you don't worship God, you worship yourself. Can I just ask you bluntly, whose name matters most to you, God's or your own? Honestly, Honestly, when you plan your life day to day, whose glory do you want? God's or yours? Was it God's glory you had in mind when you took your last job, when you made your last ten decisions? Or your own? What's guiding your life? The glory of God or your own? God's image or your image? The only strange exception to this you'll find if you turn over the page in Genesis 12 the Lord had said to Abraham now this is um, God uh, sorting out a situation again he sorted something out post flood he's now sorting something out post Babel 200 years after the Tower of Babel the Lord said to Abraham get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. There's meant to be a contrast between that statement in verse in chapter 12 and the one we just looked at in chapter 11. There's meant to be a contrast there. You're meant to notice it. The Babylonians are saying, let us make our name great. And God is saying of Abraham, I will make your name great. Now, in fairness, it's possible for you to say, well, hold on. What's the difference here? Because what God is promising is a great name. Does that not mean that Abraham's wanting a great name for himself? Well, actually, no, it doesn't. All that is happening here, essentially, is that God says to Abraham, look, the world is full of people who are making great names for themselves. You must renounce that. I will make your name great, but you must not make your own great. You must humble yourself. Oh, as the Lord Jesus Christ was going to humble himself. You must count yourself nothing as the Lord Jesus Christ was going to count himself nothing. He was willing in his pursuit of his father's glory, 
in his willingness to do what God wanted him to do. He was considered a worm. Not even a man spat upon, beaten, blasphemed and trampled upon. He'll take it. Yes, he is highly exalted. He is given a kingdom. And his name is great. His name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him. Blessed all nations shall him call. Yes. And that's true of you too. That God will make your name great too. He will bring you to glory. He will give you a place at the Lord's table in glory. You have an eternal inheritance in heaven. But all that greatness given to your name is on condition that you seek no glory in this world. You don't seek your own things. You seek the things that belong to God. In other words, your greatness is wrapped up in him. Your name is caught up in his name. Your glory only has any luster because it is in his glory. That's all you seek and that's all you live for. And at the end of the day, that's really what differentiates us in here tonight. Those who seek the glory of God and the exaltation of his name and those who seek their own, who love themselves and who love people in the wrong sense of the term, Love what's sinful in people. Let us make a name for ourselves. I remember when they they were first talking about the race uh, to colonize Mars. And this uh, American was being interviewed. It's not important he's an American. You can substitute any other nation there, really. But he says, I would love to see the American flag, the first one on Mars. And I think to myself... Why? Why? It's God's planet. Why not put something about God on Mars if we ever get there? But that's typical, you see, of man-centeredness everywhere. Now you'll notice, and the time's going on, you'll notice that God intervenes in this project. We're told in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city. That again is what we often come across, an anthropomorphism. I'm glad to see you're ahead of me. I'm going back to chapter 11 again. Yes, in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Of course, he doesn't come down in the sense that he needs to to see what's going on. This expression coming down was used of God when he went to examine Sodom. Um, It means that there's a judicial inspection and intervention. It's just put in terms that we understand. In other words, God's going to deal with this. He's coming down in this sense. He is actively intervening. He doesn't need to come down and say what's going on. He's coming down to intervene. And you'll notice in verse 7 that he actually says, come and let us go down. Now you'll find this word in verse 3, come. They said to one another, come and let us make bricks. Again in verse 4, come and let us build ourselves a city. And God says in verse 7, come and let us go down and confuse their language. Now again, this is a rather interesting Hebrew expression, which really means, and I think the best scholars would say that, that it means to give an order. It's not simply, it's not a call to uh, come. It's, it's a directive. If you're, if, you, if you're to understand that in connection with the building of Babylon and the tower, it's effectively a, a, a directive from Nimrod. Go to it is what it really means. Go to it, build a city. Go to it, build a tower. 
And God is effectively now giving the directive. Um, Again, that takes us back to Psalm 2, where we were in the morning. It's wonderful how God's songs are related to God's history. Our songs aren't. I mean, our songs focus on the same things all the time. But the songs God has given us actually focus on what he's done in redemptive history. Uh, We focused in the morning on the first part of Psalm 2, you see, uh, which spoke about the worldwide rebellion, which is what we have here. The kings of the earth set themselves. They combine themselves, saying, let us cast their cords from us. But then you'll remember how the psalm goes on. How does it go on? He that in heaven sits shall laugh. The Lord shall scorn them all, or shall hold them in derision. And then he speaks to them in his wrath, saying, I have set, I have appointed, I have decreed and established my king upon the holy hill of Zion. In other words, the rebellion was Antichrist. But God is saying, well, you can forget your Antichrist because here is the Christ. And I have established him. And if you don't come to this rock for your salvation, you shall be crushed by this rock eternally. But the rock's here, right? You may be where you want to be, but the rock is here. Deal with the rock or the rock will deal with you. He that in heaven sits shall laugh, and the Lord shall scorn them all. I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. And that's what happens here. When he says, let us go down, I think it's Trinitarian language again. And confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. He frustrates their rebellious purpose, and he enforces the dispersion to the ends of the earth that they were supposed to do in the first place. And he uses language to do it. Language is a fascinating thing. People committed to the idea of um, cosmic evolution or materialistic philosophical evolution are struggling to explain really how it came about. The persistent idea is that language probably came from primitive grunts although linguists do struggle to explain how that happened. And there are two problems with it. The first problem is that language gets infinitely more complex the further you go back. Infinitely more complex the further you go back. Um, And that just shouldn't be, should it? If it came from grants. What you would expect to find is that the further you go back, the more simple language is, and that it's become more complicated through the years. The reverse is the case. The second phenomenon that's difficult to explain is that even though you have in excess of 6,000, somewhere between six and 7,000 languages, you can group them all together up to a point. And you end up with something like in the region of 50 to 20 families of languages that you can't simplify any further. And that's a bit of an interesting problem, is it not? Why can you get all these families herded together, obviously, into common families until you reach a certain point and then they've got nothing in common at all? You can't really have 20 different groups evolving language. Even the people who believe in the evolution of language would say that that's just too far a stretch. Could it be that Genesis 11 is the truth? 
that distinct language groups were created in one fell swoop? Yes. Why not? It's a miracle. Well, yes, but so was the flood. So was the creation. So was a whole lot of things in the word of God. Just a miracle. God sent a few different languages. doesn't take many, just a few, to force the people groups to disperse. And, of course, as they dispersed, with a narrower gene pool, you remember, so they begin to evolve distinct characteristics, no doubt about that, but their languages evolve too. But within families. Within families. But significantly, when you push these families together, you reach a certain point and you can't push them any closer. They begin to build their primitive cities too. Uh, The world is still pretty cold because it's probably in the grip of an ice age post-flood. People go to extreme parts and they build cities. They have technological knowledge, but they can't apply it. I mean, you, you can't suddenly find yourself after a long trek somewhere like Siberia and expect to build an iron city. It's not going to happen. You need to mine that stuff. You simply set up a primitive city where you are. That explains why so many cities appear in the world at a certain point in time. But the desire to build a humanistic civilization continues. But as people began to be forced, they couldn't cooperate anymore. As people left in their groups to do what God called them to do in the first place, the last sound they heard is babble, babble, babble. The babbling of languages that they never understood. And the words onomatopoeic, it gives itself. The babbling of Babel, which means what in the Hebrew? Confusion. If the land of Nod is the land of wandering, where you wander without God, then its capital is Babylon, which is ultimately a place of confusion. The the thing is that when we become rationalistic and humanistic, when we become the end of everything and our own reason becomes the mean by which we get there, Do you know what happens? Instead of becoming happy, we progressively become miserable. And instead of being enlightened, we progressively become confused. I'm not sure if I... I I sometimes forget where I said a thing, so pardon if I said that recently here, but um, I remember hearing a discussion recently where a panel of three or four women were discussing... I think it was in this church, but anyway... Um, a panel of three or four women were discussing uh, how tragic a thing um, it was to, uh, to lose a child early. Um, and I noticed how uncomfortable the discussion was. Um, to, to lose a child, in other words, in the womb, say like after two or three weeks of pregnancy for the child to be lost, or even six or seven weeks of pregnancy or whatever. I noticed, you could detect it on the airwaves, uh, the unease. They were trying to comfort each other and saying, more women need to come forward and you need support. Why were they uncomfortable? Because the previous day they were probably discussing the rights of a woman to terminate such a pregnancy at will, on the ground that it's a fetus and not a human, not a person. No, I'm sorry, but you can't have both discussions. 
You can't expect me to shed tears for something that you'll kill. You, you can't do that, you see. This is the confusion that's at the heart of Babylon. Can't do it. You have a leading feminist defending the right of a woman to abort a child if that child is going to be a girl. It's a well-known fact that many cultures, well, a few cultures anyway, who are now having access to abortion only want to abort girls. <laughs> now, I'd have thought, you'd have probably thought that a feminist would be angry about that. No, they're not. Why not? Why not? Why are you not angry that it's okay to abort a girl but not a boy? It's confusion. Absolutely. The abolition of the sexes, sexual distinction. Because a tiny minority of people don't want there to be a distinction of sexes. They want androgyny, which I've spoken of before. It's fine. It's acceptable. Our, um, the wife of an RP minister in America, she, she was talking about this recently, how she speaks, you see, on these issues in places because she was a professor of queer and lesbian studies before she was converted and became a minister's wife. So she speaks on these issues, and she says that people boo her, obviously, from the audience, but she says, interestingly, some of them actually come to speak to her afterwards. She spoke of one girl who was uh, feeling that she needed to be a man, you see, and she was going to pay, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to change, to be a man. And this sister in Christ said to her, look, do you, do you not think maybe it's your thinking you need to change rather than your body? To me, that's as obvious as night and day. Should be to you, too. You see, if a person is in hospital because they hate their leg, you know, these persons who develop a, a disorder, they, they, they don't like their leg and they want their leg cut off. You don't cut their legs off, do you? You, you give them therapy. But no, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a girl a boy. That's Babylon for you, you see. That is Babylon. That's not Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem. The mutilation of the body. The tragedy is that when we want to make a name for ourselves, when we want to look wonderful, when we want admiration and applause and we want immortality and books to memorialize us and stones to idealize how wonderful we are, at the end of the day, we're destroyed by the process. The monster we create devours us. That's what happens. The only antidote is God. Um, I'll close with this. I'm sorry I've gone on longer than I intended to. But you'll notice on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in power, the apostles were able to speak in all the languages that were then present in Jerusalem because people had come from different parts of the world. They were able to speak the gospel in all these languages. <clears throat> I mentioned the motto of the early European movement in the morning, many languages, one voice. That's what you've got at Pentecost, actually. Many languages, one voice. The voice there being the message. The message of what? The gospel. 
That's true union. That's true union. When the gospel, not, not our attempts to make superstates that have man at their center, but when every ordained nation and state comes to be infused with the power of the gospel, you then have many languages all singing the same songs, worshiping the same God, and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. The city of Babylon flourishes, and um, it comes to its zenith around 600 BC, and a powerful king called King Nebuchadnezzar II, he conquers um, a considerable number of countries. He's got a policy of creaming off uh, the top layer, and especially the young ones, and taking them to Babylon uh, to thoroughly Babylonianize them. Uh, he takes one man in particular amongst the rest that come from Judah, and, uh, well, God is going to use him mightily. That will enable us to turn next Lord's Day to the book of Daniel properly. Let us pray. <clears throat> Eternal God, we pray to be vigilant against the exaltation of man and all of us ourselves personally against this desire to exalt ourselves. O Lord, we confess that pride is ever near to us, but in all things may Christ have the preeminence. May he have it in our choices, in our speech, in the desires of our hearts. May he have the preeminence in our household, so that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May he always have preeminence in this church and in other churches too. Preeminence in the word that is read, preeminence in the word preached, and preeminence in what is sung. May we always declare the Lord and his anointed. May the day return when our covenants will be honored, and when he has preeminence in our nation, preeminence on the royal throne, preeminence in the houses of parliament. May the day come quickly when his name shall have preeminence throughout all the earth. For his sake. Amen. Let's sing in conclusion the psalm we sang this morning as well. Psalm 2 on page 2. Psalm 2 and page 2. At verse 4, this is God's response to the worldwide rebellion. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord on high derides them all. Then he rebukes them in his wrath. His rage and terror on them fall. The Lord has made it known to them, my chosen king I have installed on Zion, my own holy hill, he is the one whom I have called. And then if you go down to the last two stanzas at verse 10, Now therefore kings through wisdom find, you judges of the earth, give ear. With reverence come and serve the Lord. Bow down with joy and trembling fear. Pay homage to the royal son, lest you in wrath aside are thrust, for swiftly can his anger blaze. Blessed are all who in him trust. The Babylon that's destroyed in Revelation uh, 17 and 18 
gives way to the new Jerusalem, which dominates the close of Revelation and comes down from heaven onto the earth. Verses, uh, well, the first two stanzas and the last two stanzas. Let's stand and sing them. Four to six and then ten to twelve. So four to six and then ten to twelve. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.